This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Today is Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. On this day in 1973, 11-year-old Wanda Walkowitz was sent to fetch groceries for her mother in Rochester, New York. But hours passed and Wanda never returned home from the local store. Unfortunately, that afternoon, Wanda was the second victim in the gruesome and haunting Alphabet Murders. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today we're covering the murder of Wanda Walkowitz. Let's go back to the late afternoon of April 2nd, 1973, to a mid-sized city on Lake Ontario known as Rochester, New York. It was a cold and rainy afternoon as 11-year-old Wanda Walkowitz ran home from school, eager to share her good report card with her mother. Wanda was a sweet, red-headed, blue-eyed girl with a light dusting of freckles that covered her nose and cheeks. Wanda was a happy child, optimistic and outgoing, with plenty of friends to play with after school. Her mother, Joyce, on the other hand, often relied on Wanda and her younger sister Rita to help out with responsibilities around the home. This gave Wanda a sense of maturity beyond the other kids in her grade, and her teachers took notice of that. So it wasn't surprising to Wanda when her mother asked her that April afternoon to put down her toys and run to the grocery store for a few household items. It was around 5 o'clock p.m. when Wanda laced up her sneakers and headed out to the Hillside Delicatessen on 213 Conkey Avenue. The shop was just a few blocks past her school, about a four-minute walk, on a familiar path that she took twice a day. Wanda was happy to make it to the warm shop, her bare legs freezing from the 45-degree weather outside. There, she quickly gathered the items on her list. Some milk, soup, bread, dog and cat food. The familiar store clerk said hello to young Wanda and added the total to her mother's monthly tab. By 5.15 p.m., Wanda left the store and was heading back home to play with her toys. A former babysitter saw Wanda skipping through the rain on the side of the road. She considered sharing her umbrella with the young girl, but Wanda seemed to be enjoying her time alone. A few neighbor kids also spotted Wanda just a few blocks behind them. They saw her struggling to rearrange the heavy bag, but when they turned back again, Wanda was nowhere to be seen. By 7.47 p.m., two hours later, Wanda's mother, Joyce, began to panic she phoned the Rochester Police Department and cried into the receiver. 
her daughter had gone missing. Less than a half hour later, the police and the entire community of Rochester had come together to search for the young girl. They scoured alleyways, local shops, backyards, playgrounds, even the railway tracks that cut through the area. Within hours, dozens of leads about Wanda's disappearance started to pour in. Police were told by a nine-year-old friend of Wanda's that the girls had been approached by a strange man near the railroad tracks just two nights before. In fact, the stranger had begun chasing them before running into the bushes unexpectedly. This startled the children, and neither one got a good look at his face. Police wondered to Joyce whether or not Wanda had shared the details of this event. Joyce regretfully admitted she had, but failed to report the incident to the police earlier. News of the young girl's disappearance spread through the community like wildfire. The police station was inundated with calls and tips, but unfortunately, none of these tips led to hopeful news for Joyce Wachowicz and her family. And by 10.15 a.m. the following morning, her worst fears would be confirmed. Up next, Wanda Walkowitz is connected to a string of homicides that would infamously come to be known as the Alphabet Murders. And the hunt for the killer is on. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Sometime around 5.30 p.m. on April 2nd, 1973, 11-year-old Wanda Walkowitz went for a short walk to collect groceries for her mother. But two hours later, Wanda still hadn't returned. The police and the local community began searching for the girl that night, but around 10.15 a.m. the following morning, the police came to the Walkowitz's home with some devastating news. On April 3rd, police found Wanda's body at a rest stop in Webster, about eight miles away. When the New York State Troopers arrived at the location, they spotted something white in an embankment of brown and green foliage. There was Wanda Walkowitz's dead body, still wearing the same dress she had on at school the day before. An autopsy confirmed police's worst suspicions. Wanda had been strangled to death after she was sexually assaulted. But there were other strange details about Wanda's body, like the fact that she was covered in white cat fur, despite not owning a white cat. Evidence also suggested that Wanda had been eating a type of custard before she died that she didn't have in her home, nor did she purchase any at the deli. Her killer had presumably given it to her. Wanda's murder became reminiscent of another child homicide case from two years prior in the same area of Rochester. Ten-year-old Carmen Cologne disappeared after running a family errand at her local pharmacy. 
Cologne had also been molested and strangled to death. Her body was then disposed of off Interstate 490 near a town called Churchville. Despite receiving several tips, vehicle sightings, and eyewitnesses, the police were unable to find the girl's murderer, and police still weren't convinced that Carmen and Wanda's cases were connected. But seven months later, another young girl went missing. On November 26, 1973, 11-year-old Michelle Mayenza disappeared on her walk home from school. Her deceased body was found two days later in the town of Macedon, New York. Again, the victim was assaulted and battered. An autopsy showed that, like Wanda, Michelle, too, had been fed by her killer. Now police were certain they had a serial killer on their hands. Not only did each girl's name have alliteration, their bodies were also dumped in a city with their same initial. Carmen Cologne was found in Churchville, Wanda Walkowitz in Webster, and now Michelle Mayenza in Macedon. Each girl was also a Catholic from a low-income household living with a single parent. These crimes, which came to be known as the alphabet murders, were carefully orchestrated, and their killer seemed to be mocking the authorities. But there was one lead that police could now follow. Witnesses in both Michelle and Wanda's case spoke about a beige-colored vehicle that the girls appeared to be lured into, perhaps with the help of some vanilla custard and a cute white kitten. The authorities were now able to compile a list of suspects. Miguel Colon, Carmen's uncle, was the first on a short list. Miguel was suspicious because he had a vehicle that closely matched the same description and no alibi for the time Carmen was killed. He fled the country shortly after her death and remained in Puerto Rico, but it's believed he remained there through the death of Wanda and Michelle, so it's likely he wasn't the man to commit all three crimes. But in 1991, following an incident of domestic violence, Miguel committed suicide, so we'll never know for certain. Then there was Dennis Termini, a Rochester fireman who was suspected of having raped more than 14 women between the same years of 1971 to 1973. He too owned a beige vehicle and lived in close proximity to the Mayenza family, but he also committed suicide in 1974. His body was later exhumed for a DNA sample that was tested against semen left on Wanda's body. Unfortunately, it wasn't a match. Then there was Kenneth Bianchi, an ice cream vendor local to the Rochester area. He and his cousin, Angelo Buono, were committed as the Hillside Stranglers between 1977 and 78, where they murdered more than 10 women and children between the ages of 12 and 28. He also drove a beige vehicle that fit the description, but he was never charged with the alphabet murders. Years passed, and authorities were never able to fully incriminate anyone for the murders of these three young girls. It wasn't until 2011 that a man named Joseph Nasso, a Rochester native, now 77 years old, became the most likely suspect. 
He was arrested for the murder of four women in California between the years 1977 and 1994. Each of those women happened to be sex workers, but they each had names with alliteration as well. Nasso went to trial in 2013 and was charged with the murder of the four women in California, but his DNA was not a match with the evidence found on Wanda Walkowitz. Still, Nasso was given the death sentence for his crimes, perhaps inspired by the alphabet murders in Rochester four years prior to his. And so the murders of Wanda Walkowitz, Carmen Cologne, and Michelle Maenza still remain unsolved. The alphabet murders have had a lasting effect on American culture, and if nothing else, they've become a cautionary tale that still rings true today. To keep your children close. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For more on the Alphabet Murders, check out our episodes of Unsolved Murders that take a deeper dive into the case. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Aaron Larson, and Joel Stein. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 